Welcome to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, we're going to step right into our program today because we have a guest. Uh, we have Steve Duncan with us. And Steve is uh, a retired special agent. He was with the Colorado Department of Justice for 20 years. Before that, he was a probation officer in San Diego County. Uh, his collective time was more than 30 years in law enforcement. Uh, he investigated street gangs, prison gangs, drug trafficking organizations, cross-border violence in Southern California and Mexico. In addition, he's an all-around good guy, and I'm happy to call him a friend of mine. And so I'm going to welcome Steve Duncan. Hi, Steve. Hi, Jack. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So one of the primary reasons we asked you to be on today is you have a great deal of experience and knowledge about the Ariano Felix organization and hoping that that would, uh, would be the primary area of our discussion. If that works for you. Yeah, that works for me, Jack. And I was with the California department of justice, not the Colorado department of justice. Oh, I, I knew that. <laughs> my, Sorry about my- that. My former bosses are listening. They might get a little pissed. <laughs> uh, you know, California, Colorado, they both start with C's. I'm in Colorado. Sorry about that. I I actually have it written right in front of me. You'd think I could read. Um, so let's talk about the, the AFO, the Arano Felix Organization. And I, I wanted to start with one really broad general question. If If somebody called them the Tijuana Cartel, would that be accurate? Yes. So they're the same. They're essentially the same thing. Yes, but okay. you know, I mean, yeah, but I mean, they're interchangeable. The Arano Felix organization and the Tijuana uh, uh, Cartel. Okay, so let's go. Let's start off by talking about kind of the history of the cartel, and then your investigation and things, and we can kind of have a discussion from there. Um. It seems that most people, well, let me back up. As as you've reminded me, not everything you read on the internet about cartels is correct. In fact, a lot of it isn't. And one of the things that I'm starting to find is people repeat the same wrong story over and over and over and over. So a lot of the sources that you see will say that the Tijuana cartel, the AFO, really started in kind of that 1989 period when Felix Gallardo in one way, shape or form kind of, you know, divvied up the, I I hate to make it, it it sounds like he sat down and went here, I'm giving you this, I'm giving you this. And I don't think it quite worked that way. But when he was, was no longer able to, to run or oversee things, there was kind of a parceling out of territories and plazas and that's when the Ariano Felix brothers kind of assumed control of what we now call the Tijuana cartel. Is that close to right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the way we run it down normally, you know. And I, I mean, I wasn't around in 1985 as far as working drug traffickers. I was the probation officer, and um, but yeah, you know, that's that's where our investigation starts. You know, it's the that event with Geeky, you know, being kidnapped, tortured, and murdered, and, you know, all the heat going on 
you know, the uh, family there uh, in um, Guadalajara, Caro and uh, uh, Caro and uh, Gallardo and uh, Fonseca. And so, you know, they, the territories were split geographically, but, you know, everybody was getting along. Everybody was doing the same as they used to do, going in partners on, you know, cocaine loads, weed loads, and uh, moving it into the United States and pooling their resources resources to corrupt public officials and, you know, get that dope to, to us that, you know, we love our drugs here. So um, I, I'm interested in, in kind of talking – taking us from kind of that point forward, because I think there's so many interesting things about this family and stuff. Because this one, probably more than any other cartel, I mean, we talk about, you know, there's all the familial connections, but this really was a family running the cartel, right? Yes, yes, very much so. The more blood you had, the more trust you had. Uh, so... Initially, it seems, after kind of the territories got divvied up, Tijuana cartel, Sinaloa cartel coexisted and things. And then there came a, a time when there was a big rupture in, in, in those relations. Can you talk about that at all? Yes. You know, and a lot of a lot of folks won't cover this or the media doesn't cover this well enough. Um but when you sit down and you talk to family members and you talk to people about the feud that started with Sinaloa and the Ariano Felix organization, you realize that, you know, it was more personal than professional. It was the fact that, you know, back in the days in the mid eighties, the Arianos, they were all from, uh, from the golden triangle area of Sinaloa and the, uh, Sierra Madre Occidental, um, Baraguato in particular, and they were all working for the drug, the big drug traffickers at the time, uh, Gallardo and Fonseca and Caro, and um, they all got along. But they were they were uh, you know low players or or, or or not top players in the organization at the time. And um, one of Chapo's guys, he was also a a worker for these guys. One of Chapo's guys by the name of Rio Lopez. Um, took a fancy to Anadina Ariano Felix and took her from the ranch, took her from the farm, whatever you want to call it, uh, which is kind of a custom in Mexico. If you like a girl, you take her. But she was probably in her mid-teens at the time. And Rio was an adult. And the Ariano Felix brothers didn't like that. But because of Rio's you know, connections, uh, his father was very well-to-do and very well-connected. Uh, they couldn't do anything about it. There was no re retaliation in the mid eighties until later on towards 1990 when Rio Lopez showed up at a uh, party for Mayo Zambada in Tijuana that the Ariano Felix brothers were putting on for Mayo. Um, Ramon uh, found out that uh, Rio Lopez showed up and went and whispered to Benjamin and Benjamin just gave him the nod and, and Ramon Ariano Felix went outside and executed uh, Rio Lopez and then, you know, dumped the body and had the police cover it up. But that pissed um, Chapo Guzman off. And it was tit for tat after that, you know, and they were killing each other. And, um, you know, they're all from the same ranch down in uh, in uh, Sinaloa, Baraguato. And so there were murders down there. There were murders up here in Tijuana. There were murders 
you know, all over the place. They were going back and forth. There were several meetings to iron things out, but it never worked out. And then the shit hit the fan when, um, and on November 8th, 1992, the Arianos were in uh, Puerto Vallarta because Mayo and Chapo had put a, a, a general in the Plaza of Tijuana that was putting so much heat on the Arianos. So the Arianos took a vacation. They went down to Puerto Vallarta. And I think with the day of Bahamain's birthday, they had a party at Christine Discotheque. And Chapo, you know, paid the police to go have a meeting on the other side of town and stormed the nightclub. And there was a huge gun battle. And it's very historic. And it, it's one of the major turning points in our case, and in drug trafficking, you know, there's the Camarena event. Uh, and then there's Christine's where Chapo tries to kill the Arianos and the Arianos narrowly escape. And they obviously are at war with Chapo Guzman. Mayo ends up taking Chapo's side. Amado Carrillo ends up taking Chapo's side. And it's basically Tijuana against all the other cartels at the time. And, uh, so they, uh, they had to beef up their security. And then there's the incident at the Guadalajara airport with the Cardinal. Yes, that's the next huge turning point. But after the, uh, the ambush at Christine Discotheque, um, there was a local gang member from San Diego, from Logan Heights gang, a guy named David Baron. And David was, um, he was a, we call them one percenters in, in our gangs. They were the guys that when they're, out, when they're out on the street, they have so much charisma and power and, and people follow them, you know, and all the other gangs, gangsters that are usually pretty quiet will end up gang banging and, you know, the violence rate goes up and, and, you know, uh, and so David was a guy that we had targeted in the eighties and nineties in San Diego. And, you know, he, he heated himself up pretty good and ended up going down and working for the Arianos. And he was at Christie's discotheque and he was very heroic in getting the Ariano Felix brothers to escape uh, from the bathroom of the discotheque. And because of that, Benjamin Ariano took him aside after the dust settled and said, I need, you know, obviously I'm at war with Chapo Guzman. I need to beef up my security and I want you to head it you know, under my brother, Ramon, and I want you to get tough guys like yourself. So David being a gang member in Southern California, a Soreño, and also a Mexican mafia prison gang member because he had, you know, been to both federal and state prison, uh, he ended up dipping into that pool of people and he started recruiting gang members like himself uh, to go down there and work as enforcers and in, as a, uh, bodyguards to the Ariano Felix brothers. And they were, you know, they were taught by all factions of the police, you know, um, how to shoot. You know, they were given all the gear that cops get. They were better equipped than any uh, state, federal or local police officer in Tijuana. And they were trained better. And um, so they beefed up that enforcement. enforcement. So David brought about 50 or 50, 60 guys down there after the Christine's Discotech incident. And then, you know, he got a group of guys, five or six guys that were really good with weapons. And he sent them all over the United States and Mexico to kill anybody associated with Amado, uh, Mayo, Zambada, Chapo Guzman, and Huero Palma. Huero Palma was, uh, was feared by the Arianos. And he was a very good friend with um, Chapo Guzman. So 
they went on all these missions and they were successful on several on several missions to kill people that were associated with their enemies. And in May of 1993, there was a some information that Chapa was going to be in Guadalajara. So Ramon and Benjamin got David and Ramon together. Kitty Paez, another guy that uh, was in the mix at the time, and said, we need to send a couple groups down there. So they sent about 15 of the gangsters from San Diego down there uh, under Barone. And they also recruited a group out of um, Los Mochis, Sinaloa, to be be another enforcement unit, but not talking to the other guy, not talking to the Tijuana guys, gang members. They were on two different radio frequencies, let's say. And so they they scouted Guadalajara for a week and a half and couldn't find Chapo. And so they started. Um, David Barone told the gang members to just filter back to the airport, you know, not to draw attention to yourself, gave him some money. As they're filtering back to the airport, I guess there was information on the other frequency, the one the frequency that Los Mochis uh, enforcers and their bosses had access to that Chapa was going to show up in a white grand marquee. And so a white grand marquee shows up, you know, the Logan guys, most of them are just filtering back onto the plane. Um, some of them get it. Uh, information by word of mouth that he's going to be in a grand marquee. Some just get on the plane and uh, there's a huge shootout. Uh, a grand marquee gets shot, filled full of holes. And, you know, when the dust settles, it's a Catholic cardinal and his driver that they killed, Juan Jesus Posado Sacampo. And, and this is 1993. So at the time, you know, Mexico is largely, and I'm probably predominantly 90% Catholic. And, that put the Arianos on the map, that attempted ambush of Chapo. And it also put Chapo on the map. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this event in 1993. And it caused the Ariano Felix organization to have to go underground and to run their day-to-day operations through others, um, primarily Ismael Higuera Guerrero. But, you know, that's what happened in, in May of 1993. Uh, the Arianos had to go underground. They had to hide out, and they were on the run for, uh, uh, until their demise. It's really amazing when you think about it. Uh, you know, if but for that one incident, where, you know, where would they have been and where would, you know, would El Chapo ever have become El Chapo? You know, in some yeah, ways- I know. It is. I mean, there's very significant events in drug trafficking and, and that's why, you know, history is so important. You know, you need to, you need to know your history, you know, you need to have a couple of books, you know, on your stand, you know, Desperados and, and you need, you need, you know, you need to, you, you need to know the history because, because those battles that, that started back in the eighties exist to this day. Right. And, some of the decisions are made, you know, this, it's like a feud, the Hatfield and the McCoys, you know, this went on forever and people are still dying because of their last name or because they're uh, associated with the Arianos or Chapo. Um, It's yeah, it's crazy, but it was a huge turning point. So how did you start investigating the Arianos? I got sucked into it, Jack. Um, (laughs) I'm sure you mean that in the best way possible. Yes. And it's a great story. And um, I was 
as a probation officer in California, we have something called a Fourth Amendment waiver. If you are committed, if you are convicted of certain crimes and granted probation, in most cases, you waive your Fourth Amendment right to search and seizure as a condition of your probation. So at the time, we were very intrusively supervising probationers in San Diego. And so that meant we went out with the cops. We spied on our guys. You know, if they were on street corners with other gang members, you know, wearing certain colors, we could violate the probation and put them in bail on a no bail hold. And I was one of the first selected armed probation officers selected to work the most dangerous gang members. We used to pick who we worked. And our mission was to put them in jail, put them in prison, because these were the people that victimized that, you know, the level of violence went way up when they were out on the streets. And that was our role. And it worked so well. But we also became a such an asset to local law enforcement. And in 1992, DEA started a group, uh, started a team at the Narcotics Task Force, um, dedicated to um, working gang members that were moving large quantities of dope, because DEA wants large quantities of dope on the table. That's how you make your name for DEA, you know, not necessarily the quality of the crook, but the amount of dope that you see. Uh, but I think we all get it sooner or later that, you know, the quality of crook is, is very important. So anyways, in 1992, um, I was asked to go to DEA as a probation officer to, so they could use me as a throwdown, you know, a stalking horse, you know, if they had a, if they wanted to do somebody, wanted to do a probation search. They needed the permission of probation. That was in their policy, although they really didn't need it legally. It was in their policy that they had to get the blessing of probation. So I was that guy. And so in 1993, I get a visit from this um, this guy across the hallway. His name's Jack Robertson. And Jack's supervisor at the time was Michelle Lenhart. And Michelle became, later on, became the administrator of DEA. And Jack later on became the guy to do Lance Armstrong and to get the Russian Olympic team banned from the Olympics for their systemic, you know, practice of, of doping. Um, but Jack was, Jack walked across the hallway. He was in an all DEA group. I was in a task force. He was in a group with all DEA agents that work major Mexican drug trafficking organizations. And Jack came in the office uh, one day and he goes, are you Steve? And I said, yeah, yeah. And he goes, well, you know, I got a situation here. I've got an informant running around in Mexico. He's running with a guy named David Barone. And I go, yeah, I know that guy. You know, we've been after him for years, you know, and, and he's running with my informant and with this other guy, Kitty Paez and Ramon and Benjamin Ariano Felix. And these guys are killing people. And they had just had an incident, Christine's and Puerto Vallarta, and now this guy David Barone is recruiting all these gangsters to go down to Tijuana to train as assassins, and they're going on missions to kill people, and they're actually doing it. And I need you to—I need your help. I need you to help me identify um, the guys down there because all I'm getting are street names, monikers. So the first thing I did was I introduced Jack to local law enforcement to the gang guys that had adopted me because of my asset to them is, you know, putting people in jail on probation violations. So I brought Jack to them and Jack, um, Jack, um, 
Jack was is an extremely humble and gracious guy and gives everybody credit. He's a true leader. And we ended up working together. And Jack says, you know, um, at some point he asked me, I need you to help me with this case. It's huge. You know, it's these Ariano Felix brothers. And I had never heard of the Ariano Felix brothers in 1990, early 1993. I had never heard of the name Chapo Guzman. Um, I knew Kiki Camarena because it was a big thing in the media, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyways, and I'm working black gangs at the gang, at the time, you know, Bloods and Crips. And I'm in the middle of up to my neck in cases. And I didn't, really didn't have a lot of time. But every time Jack walked in the room, he enlightened me. It was something really cool. Hey, like Steve, this guy just got shot in the face because he's talking about, you know, what he does down south. And David found out that he's talking to the girls about, you know, this sensitive stuff. And this, so they sent a hit team up here to San Diego and they shot him seven times. They thought they killed him. They went to his mother to pay for his funeral. And his mother said, God bless. He's still alive. So they're on their way to the hospital to finish him off. And I need to find him. And I go, I don't know who that is. In fact, my friend called me this morning, the gang detective, and he's babysitting the guy at the hospital. So Jack and I jump on our G-rides and we go down to the hospital and we see this kid named Crax, a Logan Heights gang member, you know, and he's got... He's got his missing his left eye, you know, they're just taking his tracheotomy out. He's got bags and, and, you know, and cords coming out of his body. And Jack walks up to him and the nurses had just given him his medication after taking the tracheotomy out. And Jack goes, what are you doing here? And he goes, oh, I got shot in a drive-by, you know, and if you're a gangbanger, you don't talk to the cops. You don't tell them what happened. You take care of it yourself. And so that Jack says, no, that's not what happened, Cracks. What happened is you have a big mouth, and David found out, and they ordered a hit on you. And you're lucky that I found out, uh, that I found you before them because they're on their way to get you. And so he's spitting up his medicine, and he's very nervous, and he's, you got to help me, you got to help me, you got to help me. And I go, well, you know, Jack says, well, you got to help us. You know, I'm just sitting there in the, in the back. And I knew Cracks from, you know, I had him at Juvenile Hall. And I had him at boys honor camp. You know, I taught him how to wash his hands after he went PP and, you know, I have social skills and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and I'm just sitting there going, man, this is cool shit, you know? And so, but every time Jack asked me to do something, it was, it was amazing, you know? And then I ended up, I ended up just, you know, he would write me up for these awards, you know, for not doing too much, you know? And I just, I wanted to work for the guy, you know, and after the Cardinal thing, he had already told me that you're going to work the enforcer, Steve, you know, I need help in this case. I want you to work the enforcers. And Jack, I'm just a probation officer. You know that, you know, I've cross deputized to enforce the federal drug laws, but you know, I don't have a lot of training and, you know, and I was very scared and tentative, you know, and, um, but you know, there, after the murder of the Cardinal, we went to, uh, we got a list of names. There was one guy they did not let on the plane because he was drunk and he was down there with all the, the gang enforcers. And he ended up going to the bar and buying around for everybody because they initially thought they had killed Chapo. They didn't know they made that huge mistake until later. And then this guy was taken by the Mexican federal officials and interrogated. And again, their ways of interrogation are off the charts. They always get a confession. And we should be going to their interrogation schools. But anyways, he gives up all the the street names. Mexico gives those names to the government of the U.S. 
And Jack brings those names to me, and we go down to the San Diego PD Police Department, and they identify every moniker with a real name. And then we go out and we have fun. We round them up because there's provisional arrest warrants for weapons charges down in Mexico. They didn't have conspiracy at the time. They didn't have other offenses that they have now. Um, And we ended up arresting these guys and putting them through the fence, you know, expelling them, uh, extraditing them, uh, deporting them. And so anyways, at the time, you know, it was uh, Napoleonic Mexico. You were guilty to proven innocent. And after a couple of years, all these guys that we sent down to Mexico got released without letting the U.S. government know they were being released. So, you know, by then in 1995, I'm heavily involved in the case. And all of a sudden, all these guys that we had deported and extradited for the murder of the cardinal are coming back into San Diego. And so our U.S. attorney at the time, Alan Burson, got pissed. And he says, well, you know what? If they can't do their case, we'll do it for them. And he goes, uh, he goes to Jack and he says, Jack, we're going to do a case. Uh, we're going to do a, uh, one of these kingpin cases, criminal, a continuing criminal enterprise. And our overt act of that event or conspiracy is the murder of the Cardinal. And we're going to hold these guys accountable here in the United States. And so Jack goes, okay. And he goes, and I've already got a prosecutor for you, Jack. So Jack goes, well, I've already, you know, uh, delegated that to my buddy Steve across the hallway. So he's going to have to run with that. And so in 1995, I get taken aside by Jack and he goes, hey, dude, you're on. You're going to investigate this case. And, you know, I meet with the U.S. attorney and we we plot out how we're going to, you know, prosecute the case, develop it. And we ended up indicting 10 gang members for the murder of the Cardinal here in the United States. And with our, um, our number one guy being David Barone as the leader of the organization. And, and so I was immensed in the case at that point, you know, um, and, you know, being a probation officer and being just a mile from Logan Heights where this gang, uh, was from, I was able to, on the way to work every day, I would, drive through the neighborhood. And on the way home, I would drive through the neighborhood. If I saw somebody that was arrestable, I get on the radio, I had the police frequencies. And I would say, hey, pick this guy up. Because Jack had told me, Steve, anybody you can get to work for Team America that can tell us about what happened with that Cardinal, I want to know, you know, you, you know, give them that opportunity. We have money in the federal system, we can, you know, get, we can put them somewhere else, you know. And so that's what I did. I made up a list and I called it a shit list. Um, But I had a list of about 200 names, Logan Heights gang members that had an Achilles heel that were either on probation or parole that could be searched with or without a warrant that had conditions, very strict conditions, because at at the again, again, at the time, probation and parole were pretty intrusive. You know, things have come around, you know, uh, but but anyways, I made a list of people on probation and parole, people that had warrants, people that were deportable. You know, back in the early 90s and the late 80s, um, INS, uh, Department of uh, the Immigration and Naturalization Serv- Service, came to us in law enforcement and in probation and corrections and said, if we have a guy on your if you have a guy on your caseload and he was born in Mexico, 
and he was naturalized and he's committed this crime of moral turpitude, then he's gone. Shit, we got rid of half of our caseloads, just deporting everybody back down. And they didn't deserve to be here. These guys, you know, a lot of these guys had three or four felony convictions. You know, they weren't going to change. Um, and so, you know, we got rid of them that way. So I have a list of about 200 people. And, you know, I knew a lot of these kids from, you know, the institutions when I worked as a probation officer. And a lot of them liked me because, you know, when I was in jail with them, we had fun. You know, we went on, I took them out of the building to the beach. We went on runs. We did 10Ks. You know, we went to ball games. Um, you know, I liked taking them out of that environment. And I was uh, allowed to because, you know, uh, I was in a particular unit. And so I had uh, instant rapport with a lot of these guys. And so these guys that I had in institutions as a juvenile, as a probation officer, um, a lot of them became my informants. And I knew them. I, you know, I would, I would pick them up or I'd get on that radio. And when a cop heard me get on that radio, they knew it was something good, you know, because we had been so successful in making so many arrests um, that we'd pick these guys up. And then... So anyways, we have all these guys that we've picked up, we've arrested, and I get this prosecutor that's going to help me put together, help us put together a case on taking down the enforcement arm of the Ariano Felix organization, primarily David Barone. And so she goes, we need five guys that will testify about, you know, their involvement with the uh, Arianos. And I go, okay, well, we've arrested a lot of guys. There's a lot of guys in prison, but let's, let's weigh the risk here. You know, I know this guy will cooperate, but he's really dangerous. We don't want him out. You know, we don't want to give him that opportunity. So we came up with five names. And the it, it was funny, Jack, because, you know, the, 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 the detectives at San Diego PD and the gang unit at the time told me that these guys don't cooperate, Steve. They don't talk to the police. And the first five guys we hit up in the prison system agreed to cooperate and to tell their stories of how they were gang members, yes, and how they were devoted to David Barone because he was a one percenter, he would, had charisma, he was a leader, um, and that, you know, he became a bigwig with the Arianos and became their head enforcers, and they recruited us, and this is how we were trained, and this is what we were issued as firearms, and these are the people that we killed, and, you know, so anyways, we created a case through those first five informants, and they were offered, you know, um, a break in their prison sentence, some of them got um, citizenship, uh, some type of citizenship. We called it an SVs at the time. Very difficult to get. But again, the federal government has resources. And so we, we were able to relocate some of these guys and put a case against, um, you know, the 10 gang members from our gang that went down to Guadalajara to kill the Cardinal in 1993. We did it here. And when we indicted the case, um, David Barone was still alive. It was in 19, June of 1997. And then uh, and, and David ended up dying as he was trying to kill a, uh, the editor of Zeta newspaper, uh, newspaper that talked poorly about the, the Arianos and that talked poorly about David Barone. And so David went after the uh, editor and ended up um, ambushing him on Thanksgiving Day of 1997. And he had a, David ended up taking a fragmented round of an AK-47 from one of his, his own guys as he was approaching the vehicle to let the editor know, hey, it's me that's going to fucking, that's going to do you in, you know. And so it's a very historic.
picture. You know, it was on the front page of the newspaper. You know, this this gang member that we didn't have a picture of in 10 years keeled over with the Mossberg, you know, 30 gauge rifle. Um, he had a vest on, you know, but the, the fragmented round penetrated his left eye and killed him. And so um, we unsealed our indictment after that. And anybody that we had in the U.S. in jail, we ended up uh, putting the charges on them there. And everybody that we everybody that we ar- arrested in that case and put in jail cooperated. And they told us about other guys. And we developed information on the higher levels of the Ariano Felix organization. Um, but I was working at the ta- Narcotics Task Force. And our team, our gang team, got absorbed by the Violent Crimes Task Force gang group, uh, the FBI and DEA. Um, And so I was working enforcement arm at the Violent Crimes Task Force. Jack Robertson was working the big case at DEA. But we were buddies. We became buddies from day one. And um, we kept in touch. And then another one of my partners came along, Dave Herod, that was in another task force operation alliance down at the border. And he was seizing tons of Coke. Um, You know, he had some great informants and he was seizing tons of Coke and his Coke led back to the Arianos. So Dave, Jack and I started working together, even though we were in different places. But ultimately, they put together the Ariano Felix task force in 1995, where we all worked in the same building under the same roof in a covert location. I love to call it that the covert location, but, um, but, you know, and then we ended up working it forever. You know, Jack eventually got taken off the case cause he pissed off the U S attorney's office and it wasn't his fault, but, um, he ended up going on, but instead of taking his ball home and, uh, crying, he uh, went on to do wonderful things like Lance Armstrong and, and the Russian Olympic team. Uh, when he got a job as a um, chief investigator for the World Anti-Doping Agency. So um, just just a wonderful, wonderful guy, Jack Robertson. And I always pay tribute to him every time I teach uh, because he's the guy that dra- dragged me into this. He dragged me into this, Jack. So I'm wondering, um, your investigation, um, what effect did that have on kind of the AFO and, and, you know, we, I think most of us know that over time, you know, one brother after the other, after the other got you know killed or arrested, but I'm, I'm just wondering how, how your work um, and Jack's work played into kind of, you know, what ended up happening or becoming the downfall of the AFO. Well, you know, we started we started working together, Dave, Jack, and I, and and about a hundred other people at the task force from all factions of police and military. And our job was to take take them down. So we all worked together. Um, you know, our biggest thing was getting the U.S. Attorney's Office to um, indict anybody um, in Southern California. They're very conservative when it came to going after people. Uh, there were some really really good prosecutors. We just didn't have them in our case, um, and um, we we did a lot of damage. You know, um, we indicted a lot of people. Um, we extradited a lot of people. A lot of our guys got killed. A lot of them became informants. 
Um, but, you know, I hate this cliche at the end of the day, but, you know, once these guys are extradited and they all want to cooperate, Jack, they all want to talk and you sit down and you talk to them for years at sometimes, you know, and you document everything they say, you put it into reports, you memorialize it, and then you enter it into the, um, the Intel system at, uh, in the federal system, you know, so that all that good stuff is in there. And then you share that information with the government of Mexico because, you know, they tell you everybody they've ever corrupted. And there's all, there's always somebody in federal, local and state that are corrupted always all the way to the top, you know, so you get all these names, you know, and, you know, and, you know, later on when the Cienfuegos things come, comes up and when the uh, Garcia Luna thing come, comes up, you know, you, you, we, we did the same things and we gave them the same information and our witnesses signed declarations for the Mexican investigators, you know, on all these corrupt officials and nothing was ever done. Um, and then our guys ended up getting all these sweet deals. And, you know, the Arianos were known for, you know, ruling their territory through terrorism, narco-terrorism, you know, and this is way back when, you know, before, you know, the violence has uh, went off the charts. They killed a lot of people and they did it in such a way that nobody wanted to mess with them. Um, you know, they sent a message when they killed, if they needed to send a message and they did. And, um, and so we ended up, you know, indicting a lot of them. Um, we finally got, we finally had success when we started working on a day-to-day basis with the government of Mexico. And Jack, that's the only way it, that this is going to work. You know, you need to have a task force, a binational task force. You need to be invested in each other. You need to trust each other from bottom to top, you know, and when that wasn't happening, we didn't get anywhere in our case. When we started meeting with the Mexican government officials, when our bosses started meeting with their bosses and put in the time to make relationships, you know, when you make that relationship, they don't want to let you down. You know, they may tell you, don't ask me to do that because I'm going to get you know, they know where my family lives, but if, you know, if you, if you're working with them day to day and they like you and you're taking them home on the weekends and you know, having barbecues and taking them to sporting events, taking them to Hooters or whatever, and, you know, you develop a bond with them, you drink a beer with them or whatever it is, but, you know, they come to trust you. And we worked operations with Mexico's for you with Mexican agents for years at a time. And that was never compromised because, they didn't want to, you know, they liked us. We liked each other. Um, and that's the only way it works. And so in 2000, I want to say in 2001, yeah, in 2000, 2001, Kitty Paez gets extradited. He's our first guy. And he doesn't want to help us out, you know, because Ramon's still alive and he's afraid of Ramon. Um, but anyways, about, a year later, Ramon gets killed in Mazatlan and he's killed. And, you know, that fear that a lot of our witnesses have is gone. And so Kitty cooperates. He tells us about dozens and dozens of murders that he helped plan and, and commit and talked about afterwards and named the guys that did them. And so we have, you know, almost a hundred murders that he told us about, you know, one guy. And so he cooperates. Then we end up indicting uh, the upper echelon of the organization through witnesses that that Jack and I had developed in our gang case uh, that Dave Harrod had uh, um, had gathered in his uh, cocaine case. 
um, and that others had gathered. And so we put all, we shared our witnesses and we came up with indictments and we indicted the upper echelon of the organization. And we put in our provisional arrest warrants. And when they were picked up, our extradition package, and we got many and many of our guys. I think there's only one out there that we haven't got yet, Manuel Aguirre Galindo, that's been trafficking dope since the 70s. You know, that's one guy that's probably moved more dope than anybody in the history of, of drugs. And um, he's still waiting to be extradited. But we still have guys that are waiting trial. Um, we still have witnesses in the program. And so it keeps me involved. You know, it keeps me involved talking to these guys, uh, preparing them if it ever comes to the fact that we're going to trial. And it may very well be soon with Gustavo Rivera Martinez. Um, but, um, you know, it, it the case never went away. And, you know, even though my agency wanted it to go away, you know, because I work for an agency that's very politically driven by whoever's governor and, uh, and attorney general. And, you know, one day you could be working drug cartels. And the next day you could be, you know, chasing some guy, bringing a, a tin can in from Arizona to get a CRV from Arizona, you know? So, um, it's, it's very fickle. It's a very fickle, uh, environment, but anyways, uh, we ended up extraditing a lot of our guys. And again, they almost always cooperate because, you know, once they're out of Mexico, nobody's going to take care of your family. They're just going to kill them all because they're worried about what you're going to say you know? And so that all they want is their families to be protected and, and to go into either the witness protection, witness security program, or just to get some money to get out of town, you know, and to take their families with them and get some type of pass into the United States. Um, and so that's usually what they're looking at and a time cut, but in our case, they got huge time cuts. And even if they didn't cooperate, they got um, they got sweet deals. And so it really took the wind out of our sails and we became very, you know, disenchanted with the whole process, the system, um, especially all the victims, because these people killed thousands of people, Jack, thousands of people. And to see Benjamin Ariano Felix get 25 years, you know, and he may be walking the streets in a few years. A guy like Ismael Higueta Guerrero is walking the streets as we speak. You know, these guys are, uh, I mean, Ismael Higueta Guerrero is a sociopath. He's a psychopath. He killed for fun. Uh, and he killed anybody that thought he was disrespecting him. And I've heard story after story about the guy. And this guy ran the Tijuana Plaza for, you know, six years until his capture. Um, and, um, to see those guys get sentences like that, it's it, it just it, it it's anticlimactic. However, however, Jack, you know we did some things that were, you know, unprecedented. You know, like working with the Mexicans on Mexican so soil to track and arrest our fugitives. Um, things that we were told we couldn't do, you know, we actually did. Um, are we directed? Uh, because we had such a good working relation with relationship with the Mexican police, you know, even though they may have been being paid by somebody else, they were true to us. You know, we had a common enemy, you know, Chapo himself would send us people all the time to tell us where our bad guys were. You know, he was the biggest snitch of them all, you know, and, um, and it was just such a, 
a crazy game for a guy like me to see, you know, a guy as a probation officer and everything's pretty much black and white. And then to start working a drug trafficking organization and you do things that um, you didn't think you could do, but, you know, ultimately they were the right thing to do. But sometimes some of these animals get a, get another chance and they don't really don't deserve it. I've got a couple of specific questions um, while I've still got you. Uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between Ramon and Benjamin. Um, and, you know, the only picture of Benjamin I have in my head is the alleged picture of him at, you know, in, in you know, dressed up to go to the David Letterman show, whether it's him <laughs> or not. But that's all I have. So uh, so the only you know, frame of reference I have is kind of this goofy guy. Um, and I'm wondering what, you know, what you know about their relationship and, and you know, kind of how they functioned. Uh, just because I think, again, the personal side is something that that uh, that I find you know unique to to this particular cartel and organization. Yeah, um, well, Benjamin was more of your chief executive officer. He was you know a lot more cerebral, uh, even tempered. I mean, he was had a bad temper, but he was e- uh, more even tempered comp- uh, compared to Ramon. Ramon was very. Um, in another sociopath like Ismael Higuera Guerrero, you know, he just, he killed people for sport. He killed people because he didn't like them. Uh, he killed people to practice his skills. Um, and that's all he did. He traveled Mexico looking for anybody associated with Amado, Mayo, Chapo, you know, Huero Palma, you know, anybody who was their enemy. Um, and that's what he would do. He would send up radio towers. He would send up his communications system wherever he went. He would have his guys with him. They would plan their attack. Um, sometimes they even planned their operations for months at a time in these valleys in Ensenada that, that mimicked, um, you know, Sierra Nevada down in, in Sinaloa to kill Chapo and, you know, the, the guys that were loyal to him. Um, but that's what he did. He was more into the enforcement side of things. You know, he had a sh- he had a shit list like I did, and he tried to kill everybody that um, was an enemy of theirs. And a lot of our guys worked for him and traveled with him and did hits with him. Uh, a lot of our cooperators. And um, but you know, Ramon met his match in two thousand one, I believe, or two, and and. Mazatlan, where he was killed by Miles cops. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, th- there was a, quite a difference between the two, but they were very loyal to each other, and they were both part of the decision-making of the uh, cartel, you know, trafficking drugs and uh, who to who to kill and who to corrupt. And, but Ramon was more enforcement-oriented. Okay. Um, so later on, the the you know, as I said, almost all the brothers. Oh, I want to ask you one quick thing because I mentioned last week that you corrected me. Every place you look, you'll see stories that say that Felix Gallardo gave Tijuana to his nephews, Ramon and and Benjamin and the others. And you told me that's not correct, right? Yeah, it's not correct. Okay. Um, and you know, some of this stuff. You know, I'm I'm a part of continuing theories that were wrong. I'm a part of that, uh, you know, and I'm on TV saying it, you know, um, 
but what happens is, you know, after these guys are extradited, you know, we got, yeah. we got our, you know, Ben Hamin in 2011. And then we got Eduardo, we got Javier Ariano Felix on a boat off the coast of Cabo San Lucas. He came directly to the United States. You know, when you start getting the family members in and talking to some of them and you, you do the family tree and, you know, and, and you dispel all those rumors. And it's maybe decades later after you've continued them on for years. But it's, it's already in there. It's already on the Internet, all these, you know, untruths. Right. And it's not, you know, it's not done maliciously, but some people just read it that way. And some people teach it that way, which I don't agree with. But, um, you know, um, the other rumor was that Enadina was a decision maker in the family. I was going to ask you about that. Um, and Enadina's claim to fame was getting raped by Raya Lopez in the mid eighties, you know, and the brothers taking offense to that and killing Raya later on, you know, and which started the feud, you know, which was more, you know, uh, more of a reason for the feud than any other, you know, business reason. Um, and that feud goes on to this day, you know, hence, you know, Pancho Ariano gets killed in Cabo San Lucas in 2013 by a clown that's, you know, from Los Antrox, you know, I mean, that feud goes on forever. And, um, but yeah, uh, and Adina as claim to fame was getting raped or that's the way the Ariano Felix brothers saw it. Um, she was never a part of the decision-making when it was came down to the decisions. It was the men in the family, the five brothers, uh, Javier, Eduardo, Benjamin, Ramon, uh, Pancho was in jail from 1993 on, and then he was extradited in 2006 for some old case in the El Centro area, you know. Um, but uh, you you find out these things. And, you know, Anadina may have laundered some money. Um, she can't be that stupid to not know her brothers were doing that type of thing. Um, you know, but, you know, the kids, the next generation knew – knew these guys by different names, like Uncle Tony and Uncle Frank, you know, and, you know, they spent their Semana Santa and their Christmases together at ski resorts or resorts in Mexico or Europe, whatever. And so, you know, the kids didn't know about their dads or didn't know about their uncles. But a cartel wife, even though you keep them in the dark, they're going to know. They got to know unless they're stupid. You know, and when somebody, uh, you know, when somebody says that their wife didn't know what I was doing, that's bullshit. They probably didn't want to know or they probably enjoyed the money and hope that would never turn rotten. But, you know, a lot of these cartel wives, you know, fell into our hands over the years, you know, and, you know, these got their big butt jobs and their big lip jobs and their big boob jobs. You know, I guess they like them really round and defined down there. Um, But, um, yeah. It's you, you learn these things and you ask the family, is this rumor correct? No, that's bullshit, you know. And, you know, you can tell when these guys are lying. Some of them won't tell you all tr- all the truths or the real reasons why they did things. They'll try to minimize them and qualify them. Um, um, but, but you get the information because you've worked it for so long, you know, you've heard it from other people. So you can corroborate what they're saying just uh, just by you know, have listening to dozens of other guys, you know, you know, when they're lying, you could call them on it. And, you know, by the time they get here, they're pretty resigned to talking to you because, you know, they, they have this respect for you because you spent so much time tracking them. 
I remember getting in trouble for taking uh, a picture with Benjamin when he was extradited, you know, because it was like, dude, you're finally here. Let's take a picture, me and the big fish, you know, and, you know, and everybody else jumped in there too. But I got into a lot of trouble for that because it, it didn't look good if it ever got to the defense. And I understand that, but it was just one of those moments that you wanted to celebrate, and, you know. I think Matabaya Steros said that when, uh, when he was ex or was captured in Honduras and taken on a plane, he actually said to the DEA, you know, something like, you know, well, congratulations. It's, you know, good job. Yeah. In essence, you know, you got me. Yeah. Um, without going in, in any specifics, um, did Benjamin talk much? I was, um, I was gone by then and I don't believe he did. Um, I talked to him. I mean, I was there at his, you know, I was the guy with the camera. Um, <laughs> hence I got in trouble once in a while when I, when I was, uh, but anyways, I was the guy with the camera. Um, and when Ben Hameen came in, I remember getting a call from my partner saying, Hey, Steve, Ben Hameen's coming in tomorrow or Thursday, and we're going to do it at the private airfield that we n normally do it. He's coming up on the DEA plane. And, and so we were all down there to greet him. Uh, the U S attorneys, the, the task force, the guys that had worked the case in the past and, and we talked to him just off the record, you know, but um, as far as debriefing, I, I, I don't think he ever did. And I can tell you that at the time, um, there was nobody really that would, uh, would know the depth of what he was saying because they basically dissolved the task force at the behest of our U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District. And um, so I was not there in the task force. Dave was no longer there. Um, Jack was no longer there. Um, and so the guys that had the historical knowledge um, wouldn't be at that table. And so, and a lot of the guys that came later didn't have the same drive as we did. You know, they didn't want to work our old case. You know, they called us historians, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But a lot of guys just want the, the wham, bam, thank you, ma'am case, you know, and go home and, and live their life rather than thinking about it all the time, you know? Right. So, um, yeah, so it, it, and that's, that's the sad part because I'm ready to go to trial. I'm ready to go back to work. If these guys want to go to it, it happened to me last year. Somebody wanted to go to trial and they thought we were all, they thought we were all dead or drooling and man, it just, it sparked something in me and I just started working. Working around the clock, developing timelines, you know. That U.S. attorney called me, Mike Wheat, what a great guy. And he goes, Steve, I found you. You're coming back to work. You're just not going to get paid, you know, $300 a day like you used to. You're going to get paid $7, you know. But I don't care, Mike. Let's go, you know. And so the guy ended up taking a plea. Um, but, you know, this stuff never dies, you know. It, it never goes away. And um, But it was a lot of fun. You know, it was a lot of fun working it and I could never and I can't say that it would ever get this type of experience anywhere else unless I was on the wrong side of things. Right. But I've heard so many good stories from so many interesting people, both demented and, you know, pretty cool um, that, you know, I mean, I mean, it stays with me, you know, and and I can tell the stories and I don't have to make shit up. You know, we don't have to make shit up. You know, every time we're talked to by a producer or a journalist, it's like, dude, you don't have to make this up. Like Narcos, right. what are you doing with Anadina? You know, right. She doesn't right. belong to this. You need a strong woman. Put the DEA agent that we worked with. She was awesome. <laughs> she kicked ass and she's still kicking ass, you know. 
Um, well, as, we've you know, t- make- as we've talked about, I, I, I give Narcos a little bit of, of um, wiggle room because they don't pretend to be. No, uh, no, no. Historic I, 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 but the problem is, like, if you, if you, this is a tangent, and, uh, but, you know, like, if you Google Edadina, one of the things that comes up is, like, narco <laughs> Mexico fandom. And it'll tell what they say, whether it's true or not. And, and you know, as, as we've talked about before, part of the problem is that the average person reading that has no idea what's true or isn't. And, and right. that's where these false stories and uh, come up. Um, you know, and that's why I started listening to you, Jack. Uh, a friend of mine gave me your 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 link, and you know, I'm 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 a member of the Camarena Foundation. I'm a I'm a um, going to bring that up in just a second. Yeah, I'm a board member, and you know, Operation Land goes on to this day, and there's not a lot of closure, and you know, there's justice to be done. And it's important to all of us in narcotics enforcement um, what happened to Kiki. It's very important. You know, it changed the way we did things. It was changed the way we were treated by, you know, the government of Mexico and Mexico police and Mexico uh, criminal organizations. Um, And it's near and dear to all of us. And when I heard that you were, uh, you know, I had a personal contact with Hector Boreas and he was saying things he was continuing rumors that were you know you read on the internet um purporting to be an expert uh and so i kind of thought through them um he made a lot of sense but he's just projecting way too far um and in his projections and his theories that aren't proven have hurt the family and and i i take offense to that and um, some of the people that he besmirched, you know, that's that's something you don't do unless you have courtroom proof. You know, you, you can't do that to somebody. And he did. Um, and I think it's because he's self-centered and he wants to be somebody. And I think that's wrong. Um, but when I found out what you were doing, um, I'm so interested in this, just like you are, Jack. I am so interested in what happened to Kiki because I work with his widow and I work with his son, and we, you know, we do presentations together and we do Red Ribbon Week um, and they're good people. You know, I know his sisters. I work with his sisters at DEA and um, they need closure. So um, when I started listening to it, it was therapy for me. And Jack, I've listened to it twice. I've listened to your shit twice because <laughs> even the though you're masochism mean anything to you. <laughs> yeah. Even though you're a defense attorney. Um, I just think, you know, you do it in a way that's very professional and, you know, you're not trying to hurt anybody, but, and I, and I'm sure you could say a lot more, um, because a lot of us feel poorly about the last snark in the law enforcement world. You know, a lot of our young guys are starting to believe it. And, you know, I know, um, I know the, uh, the administration at DEA did their own investigation and, you know, um, the last snark was very responsible in what they did. And they were told that well in advance before that came, before that came out and, um, they shouldn't have done that. Um, but you know, Kiki's very near and dear to all of us. 
Um, and we wake up doing the job because of him, you know, because of what happened to him and guys like him that were heroic. Um, it's a reason to get up and do the job. It's, you know, even though we're, we're losing, we're losing badly on this war, you know, our drugs are getting more potent and, and they're killing more people. And, you know, the, the cartels are more violent now and ah, it's just, it's crazy. Just, just crazy world. But I love, I loved your podcast, Jack. And that's why I'm here. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I'm going to go ahead and, and wrap us up just because I try to keep to an hour or so, but I'm going to ask if we can, uh, maybe have you back again. Cause I think we could talk for another hour really easy, <laughs> very easily. Yeah. But I've, I've really appreciated this and, and, uh, I had the pleasure of of uh, meeting you and your wife and Kiki Jr. Um, a little while ago. Listening to your presentation and stuff, and it it was um, it, it was you know every so often we all need um, our batteries recharged, and that certainly recharged mine. So I appreciate everything that you've done and continue to do. Yeah, and you keep up the good work too, Jack. All right, I, I don't know if I'm going to listen to you a third time. But I may. <laughs> All right, my friend. Steve Duncan, everybody. Um, great guy. Great work. Uh, we'll get him back on because I, I have about 15 questions in the back of my head I want to uh, to ask him about. So um, one more plug for the Camarena Foundation. If somebody wanted to look at it and how they could contribute, where would they go? Um, Enrique Camarena educational foundation. Okay. We have our own website. We have our own, um, you know, social media pages. Um, we just came out with the new challenge coin. Very first one. Um, I, have, I have one sitting right here. So thank you. thank you. But, you know, again, we have red ribbon week every October and we're just trying to educate our youth about the danger of drugs. We have an outreach program that we have a guy that travels the world talking to kids about the dangers of drugs. And, you know, it's, you don't need to look far to see what's going on in the world. You know, we have so many people dying here and, and so many people that are transient population that are just high on these very potent drugs. And then you've got violence that's off the chart in Mexico. Um, drugs are bad, you know, drugs are bad. They ruin families. Um, it's, it's, the cause of all this huge violence in Mexico right now. It's off the charts. It hasn't gotten better. It, it gets continually worse. You know, just down south in TJ, 2,000 murders this year. Yeah. You know, the, most, the yes. most dangerous city in the world. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and what? Last week, gunfights in the streets in Nuevo Laredo. You know, I mean, it's. Every week there's something. It's crazy. Yes. It's scary. So, you know, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and it's easy for us to see the, the, the evils of drugs. But, you know, again, you know, that the, the average Joe, you know, who thinks he's just buying, you know, a hit of Coke or a fentanyl pill, they don't see the trail of blood left behind, you know, right. and that's, you know, we have to think about that, you know, and we have to get our kids to think that way. And, you know, just all the day. All right. Thank you, sir. Have a 
Have a great weekend. And thanks, everybody. We will be back next week. I got two kind of special holiday episodes coming up. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Thanks again for listening.